unbelievers think we cannibals or something. We always speak about the blood, <laughs> the blood and the lamb and the lion and all of those things. But we, we sometimes we say these things and we don't understand what it really means. And I think when it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ, I think to an extent we understand, but I'd really love to delve into the cross and what happened on the cross. Because I'm, I'll, I'll say this later, but actually, you know, in the Gospels, about a third of the Gospels is devoted to the lead-up of Jesus dying on the cross. And the book of John, which is an amazing book, it's an amazing account of the Gospels, about half of the book of John is devoted to the week before Jesus' crucifixion. And so there's this emphasis on the, on the blood of Jesus, yes, but also on the cross of Jesus. And everywhere you read throughout the New Testament, there will be references to this cross. And I fear that sometimes when we speak about the cross, when we speak about other things as well, all we do is we speak Christianese. You know what that means? <laughs> Christianese is just lack of things to say because you f f sound more spiritual. You know, when you pray, Jesus, thank you for the cross. And you sound a lot more spiritual, but we don't know what it actually means. What actually happened on the cross? What took place on the cross? Um, now, I want to start by saying I, just telling a story, a little story from my life. But when I started driving, um, my aunt and uncle bought me this little green city golf. They don't make city golfs anymore, but they are legit cars. Those things, they're an am amazing cars. And I had this little green city golf that was a second-hand old one that they had that they said I may use. But this thing was actually quite broken. I didn't choose it. It was given to me. It wasn't my choice to have this city golf. <laughs> So I remember if I would turn a corner with this car, it would just start hooting sometimes. Not always. <laughs> it would just start hooting. So you turning. <laughs> and also sometimes when I would push on the brake, it would just start hooting. <laughs> so you can imagine how awkward that is if you stop behind someone at a stop street and this thing is just going. <laughs> And the people are like, what the heck are you doing? Or you turn a corner and there's people next to the road and a dude's at them. And I just had the most awkward moments with this car, but I did not choose that car. So that car doesn't, it can't really tell you anything about me. It was the only thing it told you that I was desperate. I just wanted a car. That's all it told you about me. <laughs> and I had many fun times with that car and naughty times as well that I was saved. So sort of naughty times, right? Um, cut the quad naughty, you know, like the not too bad naughty, naughty. <laughs> but if you were to look at my car now, Carla and I both sold our cars when we got married. I had this little Ford Figo because my City Golf, I'm not sure why I'm telling you the story, but I wrote it off without being in it. I, I didn't pull up the handbrake high enough. <laughs> and it went down a hill over a busy road and it hit a, a tree and it was written off. That's how I lost my second city golf, which I got after this one, it was given to me for, from family for my 18th birthday. And then I got this little Ford Figo that my family bought for me, and my wife had this polo. And we drove those things as long as we could. Eventually, we sold one, kept the money, sold the other, kept the money. And then we found out that we were pregnant with twin girls. And let me tell you, it's a logistical nightmare. So what I did is I first brought the pram before I bought the car. We knew we needed a new car because we couldn't fit everything into this little car. It's two, two babies. Listen, if you think you pack a lot for holidays now, you can go away for an evening with babies and it feels like you're packing for a month. It is a lot of things that you need to pack. So we knew we needed boot space 
And we first bought the pram, I measured the pram, and then we went car hunting <laughs> so that I could make sure the, the pram actually fits into the car because it's a twin pram and those things are humongous. It's like a boat that you drive around. It really is humongous. So the City Golf, I didn't choose. The, the X-Trail that we drive at the moment, I did choose, and I chose it for a specific reason. And you were, if you were to look at our new car, actually, without meeting me, that car would actually tell you a lot about me. Because I, I chose it. it. It's a car that we chose. We had a specific goal in mind for that car. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't because it was just the cheapest one. It was a specific car with a specific purpose in mind. We chose it. And actually, because we chose it, when you choose something, it tells something about you. No, if a girl chooses you, that tells you nothing about you. But when you choose the girl, <laughs> it's a joke. It's really a joke. <laughs> it's sort of true. If you look at my wife, you'll be able to know a lot about me because I chose my wife. It, didn't, it wasn't an arranged marriage. I chose. And because I chose, the things that you choose tell you a lot about you and who you are. If there was a specific reason for you choosing it. Now, with the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus chose the cross. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't by pertufal. It wasn't, it wasn't just random. Jesus chose the cross. So if we zoom into the cross, if we look at the cross and what it actually was historically, and not only historically, but also theologically, it tells us something about our Savior. And I want to look at the cross in detail tonight. Look at the thing that Jesus chose. You know, when Jesus came to earth, he did not come to be a good person. That's not why he came. He didn't come to be a prophet. He didn't come to have masses of people following him because at the end of his life, he only had 120 devoted followers. He didn't come for any of those things. You know what he came for? He came for the cross. He came to die on a cross for our sins. And he chose that specific way to die. And I want to get into why our God, the God of the universe, the God who is almighty, that was there at creation, that will be there in the end when he comes a second time, the God who created the universe, the God who created you, every single hair on your head, God created and he knows how many there are. It's an intricate, almighty God. And that almighty God humbled himself, came to earth and died on a cross. Why a cross? What is it about a cross? I want to tell you a little bit about the cross because Jesus wasn't the only one to actually die on a cross. The cross as a form of execution for people, the worst criminals to die on, was actually invented in 500 BC, more or less, by the Persians. And it was the way chosen for the worst of the worst people to die. So back then, they still had the death penalty. You could argue that that's maybe not the worst thing ever, because sometimes I feel like there are people who deserve the death penalty. But they had the death penalty. It wasn't like you only had a little bit of jail time, and the jails are full, so now we make your jail, jail time less. If you were a criminal, many times you would be sentenced to death, but the worst criminals, those who society despised and they wanted to make an example of them, they wanted to say, do not be like these people, they would kill them on a cross. And the cross was used as a form of execution for the worst criminals out there from 500 BC up until about 300 AD after Jesus' death. And it was banned by a guy called Constantine who was the emperor and it looks like he got saved. By most accounts, it looks like he actually got saved, and then he banned it. He said, no one is allowed to die on a cross. But it still happens. Um, Hitler, he, uh, he and his cohorts crucified Jews. It actually happens. 
today still in persecuted countries in the world, they would take Christians and they would, they would still hang them on a cross for them to die. The cross those times and in the day of Jesus weighed about 45 kilograms. Uh, and that's, that's okay, that's heavy-ish. If, you, if you've ever picked up a 50-kilogram uh, cement bag, for some like Nico, that's easy. For me, that's quite heavy. <laughs> it's quite a heavy load, but it was 45 kilograms of wood that, um, that was, that was uh, there for people to, to die on. And wood in those days, it was quite expensive, the working of wood. It wasn't, it wasn't a cheap thing. You didn't have super wood or or plywood or anything like that. It was legit big pieces of wood. So it was quite expensive. So if you were to die on the cross, you would not be the first person probably to die on that cross. The crosses were recycled. Someone would die on that cross. Their blood would be on that cross. That Their sweat, their tears, their feces, their we, everything would be on that cross. We'll get to the detail of it. But everything would be on that cross and they would take it down. They wouldn't clean it and they would use it again and again for people to die on. It was an horrific way to die. Horrific way to die. When you were put on a cross, uh, your hands, it was actually, many say it wasn't through year that you were crucified, but it was through year so that it would not slip. But, but nails would be put through year. In later days when they crucified, they would put swords and long knives and even these um, bayonets, which is the front part of a, a gun, that those knives on the front part of the gun, they would take those off and they would crucify people with that. They would put it through year and put it through your feet, and you would not die by the pain of that. You would die by asphyxiation. Flip, now I'm going <laughs> to... Asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. Have I got it right? Asphyxiation. I practiced it before, and, and I thought my English was okay for tonight. <laughs> but you would die by not being able to breathe, because as you would hang there, you would have to painfully pull yourself up just so that you could breathe, and as you get tired and as you get sore from the, from the nails being there through your arms and through your feet, you would start hunching down. And as you do that, you would struggle to breathe. And so you would actually die because of not being able to breathe, not being able to hold your body up. And you would choke to death. That's the way that you would actually die. So they would, they would extend these periods of time that these people would hang on a cross. It wouldn't be a quick death. It's a slow, painful death, very slow, painful death. In fact, many of these people, as they would hang on the cross, historical accounts tell us that they would use their last breath to actually try and wee on the people that were there out of frustration and anger and spit on them, and then they would die, and it would take a few hours, and they would leave you there. The source of the word excruciating today comes from cross, crux, the cross. So if you describe something as excruciating, it's because of that method of death that was used back then. It was something that was done in public. It wasn't a private death. It wasn't like you were put in a little room and you would die there. They wanted to make it a shameful death. So if you died on a cross, they would put you in a public place. It would be similar to if we had to crucify someone today, put them in Victoria Street or put them next to the Nielsea or put them at Akerstadt Mall. Everyone had to see. Those people were an example. And you would walk by and you would mock them and you would jeer at them because you wanted them to know that you did not agree with what they did. They were the worst of the worst criminals. There's an account um, just, after, just before Jesus, actually, that they crucified a guy called Spartacus. You would have heard the name. When he was captured, they crucified 6,000 of his soldiers. 6,000 of his soldiers. They crucified next to the main road. 
of a town. That's like, imagine you go down Victoria and there are 6,000 people hanging on crosses, screaming, like fighting for their lives, but dying by asphyxiation. It was something that was done in, in public. If you died on a cross, there was no burial given to you. What you would do is you would hang there and they would leave you on that cross, wherever it was, until the vultures would start picking you uh, apart piece by piece. These historic accounts, if we read, ex- read extra literature, that it's these, these stories of how dogs would come and start chewing on the bodies of the people. And I'm sorry if this is gruesome, but I want to get the point across that these are things that actually happen in history. And we'll get to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that chose this as his method of dying. And there's stories that the, the, the dogs would actually pull apart parts of the human and go and chew on it like a toy. That's how you would die. It was an excruciating death. It was a horrible death. It was a shameful death. It was mostly men that were crucified because they felt like it's too bad of a thing to do it to a woman. When they did it to a woman, they would let the woman turn around because not even them could look at her face while she was dying that way. And then as you were hanging there, as you're dying, the accounts tell us that you would bleed down the cross, your sweat would go down the cross, and people would start urinating where they are and doing it from the back as well, whatever you want to call that. But they would leave everything there so it would be a stinky, messy puddle beneath the cross. Do you get the point that the cross was not a beautiful thing? Said they're the wonderful cross. The cross was not wonderful. It was not a wonderful way to die. It was the worst way that a human being could die. Mark Driscoll, and I think he's, he's right in saying this, he said, it's so strange that today the cross has become the symbol of Christianity. Imagine, it's the thing that we wear around our necks. People get tattoos of crosses. And today we just think, oh, it's a symbol of Jesus. Back then, that was like putting a, a, a needle that you would, that you would uh, use to kill someone or a whatever, how do we kill, like an electric chair. It's like getting a tattoo of an electric chair on you. That's what it was. It wasn't a beautiful symbol. The people thought that that was a strange thing when people started carrying crosses with them. It's a mode of execution. Mark Driscoll says, it is like, um, it's akin to a junkie's needle or a pervert's used condom becoming the world's most beloved symbol. It is the ugliest of the ugly thing that you can imagine and that you could have imagined. And now it's become one of the world's most famous symbols, the cross. You put a cross anywhere, almost everyone in the world will know what it means, will know that it symbolizes Jesus. So we get the theoretical truth of this. This is actually what happened. This is not just a Bible story. You can look at other accounts, other accounts of history, and you would read of crucifixion, and you could even find accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. But do you know the difficult thing about Christianity is that it's so easy to know things as fact, but we don't get to theology. We know it as, as history. Yes, it happened. These things happened. People were crucified like that. Jesus was crucified like that. But theologically, meaning when it speaks about God, what does it mean and what does it do for me? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? So let's look at Jesus. I said that a third of the Gospels are devoted to the leading up to the cross. Half of John's Gospel is devoted to the leading up of the cross. <clears throat> but here's how Jesus was crucified, because in many accounts, Jesus was crucified in even a worse way than many of the, the criminals of that time was crucified. Now, you would know that when Jesus lived on earth, 
He lived a flawless life. There was no finger that could be pointed to him. And at the Last Supper, when he was having the bread and the wine with his disciples, actually prophesying that he would die, which we'll look at in a moment, he was prophesying that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed for all of humanity. And he said, take this drink, take this wine, and take this bread in remembrance of me. In that moment, Satan comes into one of the disciples, Judas, and allows Judas to get something in his heart to go and betray Jesus. And he betrays our Savior with a kiss. He receives money, and he sells out Jesus so that Jesus could be, could be brought before a trial. Jesus was then brought before a trial on account of blasphemy, meaning saying that he's God. And many people say Jesus never said that he was God. Which, uh, if you go read the Gospels, it's difficult to find, if you just read it at face value, that Jesus said, I am God. He never used those words. But he was crucified for blasphemy. Everyone said, this guy calls himself God, and he never denied it. He said, that is why I'm going to the cross. Standing a trial, thousands of people gather, and when they have an opportunity to let him go, they bring false testimony upon false testimony to our Savior, and every time he has the opportunity, now remember, this is God. He does not have to die. He does not have to stand there and take it. He chooses to take it. He said, I will not go. This is the way that was chosen for me. In fact, even when Judas comes to betray him, he gives Judas permission. He says, Go and do what you have to do. Satan did not win by the cross. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly went there. And so these false testimonies come, come to him, and eventually the decision is made that he would be killed with the worst of the worst, and he would die by means of crucifixion. But it didn't start there. First, they blindfolded our Savior. So just imagine that for a moment. You know, the God that we're worshiping tonight, I mean, we sing to him, we lay down our lives for him, we love him. He loves us. That God, the God of the universe that, that actually came, he decided to come to earth. No one forced him. He decided that because of his love for us, because of his love for the people who would crucify him, he came to earth. Philippians 2 said he humbled himself. To the point of being a servant. He makes himself a servant. He makes himself a human being. It's God. And he allows all of this. At any moment he could stop it. But first what they do is they blindfold him. And they start beating him. You know that's the picture that we have of Christ. Many people. Halo around the head. Not a spot of blood on his, on his body. That's not the truth. They beat him. They started beating him up till the blood started flowing from his body. Then they took something that is, they call a, a cat of nine tails. What it is, it's, it's, a, it's basically leather straps with balls attached to some of it, these iron balls, metal balls. And on some others, there would be these little hooks. And what they would do is they would hit someone with it. And the, the balls would, in a sense, act as something that would tenderize the flesh of the person, like you tenderize a steak. And they would hit into Jesus, these people, with these balls that would soften his body. And then these little hooks would go in and actually pull the flesh, pull the skin, pull the tendons, and pull the muscles from him. You know, by the time that Jesus was finished with that, that's before he went to the cross. Even before he went to the cross. The Bible says to us in Isaiah 52, verse 14, that he was marred beyond recognition. Meaning if you saw Jesus a day before, 
you would not have been able to recognize Jesus that day. He was so bloodied. He was so beaten. His body was probably so blue. He was probably in so much anguish that you would not even have been, rec- been able to recognize him. They took a crown of thorns and put it in, on his head. Not only lightly, they probably pushed it into his head so that the blood started flowing. And they put it mockingly. They put a sign above his, his head on the cross that said, King of the Jews. And then they let him carry his 45-kilogram cross up a hill, Golgotha, where he would be crucified. They let him carry it. Jesus was so weak that he could not carry a 45-kilogram cross up a, up a hill. And I'm telling you, Jesus was fit. He was strong. He really was. <laughs> you think I'm joking? I'm not joking. <laughs> he really was. Back then, they walked a lot. They walked a lot. You walk from your computer to the loo. That's how far you walk. <laughs> they walked many kilometers. And for most of his life, probably from the time that he was 13 to 16, he was a carpenter that worked with his hands. He was strong. He didn't look like that, people. These, this is like the image of Jesus that he did not look like. He had dark skin. All you whiteies better know, Jesus was not white. <laughs> he wasn't white. He was a Jew. He had, he had a darker complexion. He wasn't this beautiful picture that we see. So the Bible says you wouldn't have been able to recognize him from a crowd. He was a normal person. And he was fit and he was strong. He worked with wood his entire life. How ironic that the thing that he worked with would be the thing that he would be crucified on. He was so broken down even before going to the cross that he could not carry his cross. And so Simon, a guy called Simon had to carry him up. During those days, this was really something that was frowned upon. During the second century, there was graffiti found um, called Alexamenos Graffitico with a picture engraved. Um, in Italy, they actually found this. Uh, and this was just after Jesus' death. And there's an inscription that says, Alexamenos worships his God. And it's a picture of Jesus on the cross. You can go Google it. It's Jesus on the cross, but his head is the head of a donkey. Mocking. People didn't see it as the beautiful thing that we see it today. Today we see it as the, as the image of a, of a loving God. Back then they saw it as a man who was a failure. A man who was the worst of the worst. Isaiah 52 verse 14, as I said, says that Jesus was marred beyond recognition. We could not even recognize him. Is it sinking in? It's hectic, eh? It really is bad. And it begs the question, why? Why does the God of the universe have to die in such a way? Why? Why did it happen? Now, I want to say that actually, it's always been the plan. It has always been the plan. It wasn't by fluke. It wasn't that in the moment Jesus decided. It was not that Satan had the last say. Jesus had the last say. It was always the plan. And throughout the Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, you would see that it was always prophesied that that is the way that Jesus was going to die. This wasn't, it, it wasn't a new thing. Listen to this. Isaiah 53, verse uh, 3 to 4. I think you've got it there. This is a prophetic thing of Jesus. This is years before Jesus even lived on the earth. And this is a prophetic, um, a prophetic word that goes out in the book of Isaiah. It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering 
and familiar with pain. Like one for whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. This is a prophecy all the way back then, that this would be the way that Jesus would actually die. And I want to take you back to one story, one thing that happened in the Old Testament that is in a sense a prophecy of the cross, and it gives us greater insights into what actually happened on the cross. And this was something that happened once a year. It's called Yom Kippur. You want to say that with me? Say it, one, two, three. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. You must say it again. I can't hear you. One, two, three. Yom Kippur. And it means the Day of Atonement. So here's, it's, it's just, so you must follow me here. This is a story, it's a prophetic image in the Old Testament that would show us what would actually happen on the cross. You're following me, eh? So it's going to give us more of an insight onto what actually happened on the cross and why God prophesied it and chose the cross to be God, God's chosen instrument for Jesus to die on. So here's the thing, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, once a year, the people of God would have their biggest festival of the year called Yom Kippur. Yom is the word for day and Kippur is atonement. It would be the day of atonement. And it would be a special day. All of the Jews would gather around and they would, they would celebrate the fact that their sins would be taken away. And this is how it happened. It's actually, it's actually really a beautiful picture. There would be two goats that they would take out of the flock. And they would choose the best goats, young goats. They would have to be the image and the symbol of perfection. And they would take these two goats and both goats, the two goats had different objectives or different reasons they would choose them the people would gather and they would the the high priest which was the special chosen guy of God in a sense in that time he would lay his hands on one of the goats and he would ask God that the sin of all the people would come upon the life of this goat that would be their prayer and then as that happens they would slaughter the goat and take the blood of this goat that had all the sin in a sense the sin of the people was put upon this goat they would take the goat and they would take the blood and the temple of God, which signified the presence of God. It would be the place that people go to worship. But you were only allowed into certain parts of the temple. But in the innermost part of the temple, behind a very thick curtain, which we read about in the New Testament as well, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God. It was the Holy of Holies. And once a year, one person was allowed in there. How crazy. Only once a year. One person would be allowed in there, and that would be the high priest. In a sense, the chosen one of God that would go in there. There are stories. I know tonight is a lot of fact in a sense, and, and it's a little bit of a different message. But there are stories that says that that high priest would have a, a, a rope tied around his ankle with bells on it. So that if he goes into the presence of God, because it was such a holy place that he would go in behind this thick curtain, if he dies and the bells stopped ringing, they would be able to pull him out by his leg. If he wasn't holy enough and he would die because of the presence of God. And so this high priest would once a year, he would take the blood of this goat that, had, that signified the sin of the people. And he would take it and he would go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. Into the presence of God and he would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. Signifying the sin of humanity being forgiven by it being cast to God. The second goat, and, and what would happen in that moment, it's a big word called propitiation, meaning the sin of the people would be cast towards God. 
and the righteousness of God would be given to the people. At that moment, the people would receive the righteousness of God. Their sins would be forgiven. The second goat they would pray for, they called this the scapegoat. They would lay hands and again pray that the sin of the people together, they would pray for these goats. The sin would come upon this goat. And it was like one thing that would happen, but it had served different purposes. The scapegoat would be, and you can read about this in the Old Testament, would also have the sin of the people. And then they would chase this goat into the wilderness, signifying the sin of the people getting away from them. Expecia, flip my English tonight is like so, I'm so struggling. I, I wrote it down here somewhere. Expiation, I think, is the correct word for that. But the sin would be chased away. It would be taken away. And so this would happen once a year. It would be this beautiful image of what God would did, or what God would do. Now, I want to quickly show you, Skalk Willem, if you can come stand here. And someone can maybe just hold the mic for me, please. Alejo. Jakub. So this is what God would actually do there. Well, actually, I'm not going to be here. What God would actually do here, the picture of it was, and this is the picture that we're going to get to in the cross. The picture of propitiation would be that God would say, I have righteousness. Because God is perfect, right? He's holy. He hasn't done anything wrong. Okay, you can have a comment. God would say, I'm going to take off my righteousness. Imagine this jacket being God's righteousness. And he would say to Skulk Willem, I want you to take your sin and just take it off quickly. <laughs> and God would say, by the sprinkling of blood, he would say, I'm taking your sin upon me. And God would say, I take your sin upon me, and I give you <laughs> my righteousness. Just quickly put it on, but give it back afterwards. <laughs> if it fits. That's why I didn't ask Nico. So. <laughs> Does it look good? <laughs> God would say, I give you my righteousness. So why did Jesus die on the cross? There's this word in the, in the Bible that says that when Jesus died on the cross, he did it for us. It's the word, the, the Greek people would correct me here, but it's hooper is the word. It, is, it means I do something on behalf of you. So when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die so that prophecy could be fulfilled. He didn't just die so that he could, he could look like the, the goats of the Old Testament. He died for us. He died for us. And what he did in that moment as Jesus died on the cross, and today that still applies to us, is he says, I took the sin of the world upon myself. I took all your sin, everything that you've ever done, I take it and he placed it upon himself on that cross. He took it for himself. And then he died. He took your, everything that you've ever done, everything that humanity has ever done, he took it upon himself and he died for those things. And not only that, because that, that would be a good story to tell, but he doesn't only do that. Jesus says, I lived the perfect life. I haven't done anything wrong. I am God. I take my righteousness, my right standing before the Father, and I now, because of the exchange of the cross, Martin Luther called it the great exchange. We don't deserve it. He says, I'm giving my righteousness to you to put on. So when Jesus sees you, or when God sees you, when the Father looks at you, he always looks at you in light of what happened on the cross. 
Never again does he only look at James and only look at Brigitte. He looks at you in light of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He looks at you as your sin being taken away, crucified on that cross, and Jesus' righteousness, perfect life, placed on you, and that gives you standing before the Father. Thank you, Skulk. That is the beautiful thing that Jesus did on the cross. He died for our sake. I want to read you a couple of scriptures and just quickly go through them. Then we're almost going to just land towards just what God wants to say in this. But um, as I said, the word for, God, when he died on the cross, he did it for you. Just say it with me once. He did it for me. One, two, three. For me. I want to look at that word for, and you, you see how beautiful the Bible speaks about this. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. How beautiful that even in the Old Testament it says that he would be crushed for our iniquities. He did it for us. He died on that cross cross for us. Isaiah 53 verse 12b, the end of, of that, said, For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Meaning he took the sin of all of us on him. He did it for us. He bore our, um, he interceded for his transgressors. Romans 5, 4 verse 25. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Just give me an amen, please. <laughs> he died for your sin, and he was raised for your justification. Justification means just as if I've never sinned. That's what he did. He, when he died, he did it for your sin, for humanity's stupid sin, for everything that you've ever done wrong. Every little bit of pornography that you've ever looked at, Jesus took it upon his shoulder. Everything that you've done with a guy or a girl that you shouldn't have, Jesus put it upon his shoulders. Every nasty word that you've spoken to your parents, Jesus took it upon his shoulders. He died for those things. Everything that your parents have said to you that they shouldn't have, he died for it. He died for the rapist. He died for the murderer. He died for the one that had an abortion. He died for the one living openly in homosexuality. He died for those things. He took upon the worst of the worst. He took upon his shoulders and he said, I die so that I can give you new life. Died for our sins and he was resurrected for your righteousness. So that those things do not define you anymore. Listen, what you've done in your life does not define you anymore if you are in Christ. You are defined by what happened on the cross, not what you did pre the cross. The cross is your new defining factor. That jacket of his righteousness, that defines you. And we need to remind ourselves so frequently when we fall into sin, when temptation comes and knocks on our door, this is not who I am. Those things, those things that I've done wrong, the sins that I've committed and still commit, those things were crucified with Jesus on the cross. He died for those things. And he was erected for me to become a new person, for me to receive Christ's righteousness. Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you, not 
now that you've been, become a better person. No, while you were at your worst, while you were still a sinner, he saw you at your worst on the cross. That's when he died for you. Just take a moment. I did this a couple of weeks ago. Think about the worst sin that you've ever committed in your life. It's not a great thing to think about in church, eh? Think about the worst thing that you've done. Maybe those things that you've never told anyone and you never want to tell anyone. Worst thing that you've thought or done. Think about that. Now just imagine that times 150, 200 people in this hall. Imagine the weight of that. Imagine the anguish of that. Imagine, remember in that moment when you did that and now you think of that, just feel that feeling. It's not a nice feeling, eh? Experience that emotion again of, of you feeling like regret and that you shouldn't have done that. Just imagine that. Now imagine you could take everyone, everyone in this hall that feels like that, that regret, that remorse, that sense of guilt. Imagine you could take all of that upon yourself. Now imagine you could take everyone from 4 p.m., you could take all that regret and remorse and put it on yourself. Are you starting to feel what that must feel like? Do you think it would be crushing? Do you think it would be horrible? Do you think it would be something that you would not wish on your worst enemy? Now imagine the sins of Stellenbosch, the worst thing that everyone has committed. Put that upon yourself. We can't, we can't carry it. We can never carry it. Now imagine the Western Cape. Imagine South Africa. Imagine the world. Imagine the world for the past 6,000 years. And imagine the world for how long ever we are still have on this earth until Jesus comes again. Imagine all of that being placed on one person. That person being God. And now the Bible says, I show you my love that I died for that. The worst thing of Jesus' death on the cross was not the physical pain. It was carrying the sin. And on that cross, as he hung there, he said, I'm showing my love for you by taking all of that upon my shoulders. In fact, it was so terrible for him that before he went there, he said to the Father, please, if there's any other way. Listen, he wasn't speaking about death on a cross. He knew that what, was what would wait for him afterwards would be life eternal. He was speaking about that, that weight, that anguish that had to be put upon himself. And he did it to show you that he loves you. To show you that he cares for you. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 13. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse on that cross to the point that the Father uh, looked away in that moment. The Trinity was separated in a moment because he became the curse on that cross. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. From the Old Testament, it's what the Jews believed. Two more, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to bring you back to God. He chose to die the worst death for the worst people, so that those people could become new people. Not just better people, new people. 1 John 2 verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
and not only for us, for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for the rapists. He died for the thieves. He died for the perverts. He died for the addicts. He died for the liars. He died for the gluttons. He died for the gossips. He died for the murderers. He died for the adulterers. He died for the homosexuals. He died for you. Jesus died for you. He was thinking of the world and he was thinking of you on that cross and he chose the lowest of lowest death. That is our God. That is the love of our God that we'd be willing to go through that so that we could be made new people. He doesn't want to make you a better person. He wants to make you a new person. He wants to take your old self, take it away, and he wants to put your new self on, which is you in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that you find in Jesus. And in fact, Hebrews 12 verse 2, I'm ending with this scripture. It teaches us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He did it because he knew the end product, and there was joy at the end. What he went through was not nice, but he knew that as he would go through it, it would produce sons and daughters of God. It would make people righteousness. Scorning at shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is not on the cross anymore. Hallelujah. He is risen. He's risen. But the cross still applies to you today. Can we stand as we end?